Once again, we return in our studies to Romans chapter 6. And just as I did last week, I would like to read a rather lengthy portion of this chapter. I know there's a lot here, but just to try to give you some sense of the flow of the text. And then we will dig in and try to pull some things out of here. I want to begin reading this morning in verse 11. Romans chapter 6, verse 11. We're going to read all the way down to the end of the chapter. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you, who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And may the Lord help us to understand to shed very valuable spiritual light on this text to us this morning. Let me start out by asking you guys a question. What is the goal? What is the goal of these verses? What is it that God is seeking to accomplish in us and in this church through the inspired words of Romans chapter 6? What is it? 
And I want to help you answer that question this morning. You can plainly see it in a number of verses. Now, again, just as we did last week, I want you to have your Bibles. I want you to keep them open. Right there in Romans 6, we're mainly going to be there. Very rarely am I going to refer to anything outside of this chapter. I just I want you to be able to look there. I want you to be able to see that what I am saying is a reality. This is critical to your life, to my life, to the life of this church. Absolutely fundamental. Because it has to do with what mainly? Well, here it is. Romans 6, 6. Jump in there about partway through the verse where it says the body of sin. The body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That is the idea that repeatedly comes out again and again and again throughout this chapter. We, we have predominantly two things being done in this, in this chapter. One, we have facts being stated about the fact that sin will not have dominion. Sin is no longer your master. Sin no longer can enslave you. You are dead to sin. You are alive to God. These kind of truths are laid out repeatedly. And then, on the other hand, you have the commandments, the imperatives given that you must not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Again, Romans 6.12. Let not sin reign in your mortal bodies. Romans 6.13. Do not present your members to sin. Romans 6.19. Now present your members as slaves to righteousness. That's the goal of these verses. Freedom from sin in all of life and a devotedness to righteousness. You guys, did you hear that word that I said? This has to do with sin in all. Not all of your lives collectively at so I'm talking individually here about every person and all collectively we need to have this fight. I'm talking in you individually as a person. This has to do with every aspect of your life. Everything. This is not some little religious corner of your life we're talking about. It's not when you come to church, what kind of face do I put on and how do I act in front of everybody? This has to do with when you wake up in the morning this has to do with how you drive. This has to do with how you vote. This has to do with how you exercise, how you do yard work, how you shop for your groceries, how you eat, how you drink, how you pray, how you fast, how you're involved in missions, how you're involved in evangelism, how you relate to your spouse, how you relate to your children, to your parents, to your friends, how you relate to other Christians, how you relate to the lost. This has to do literally with every single aspect of your life. It has to do with how you conduct yourself after the service is over. When we're in this time of lunch afterwards. How, it has to do with how you make efforts to get to places on time. It has to do with how you do your work, how you do your school, how you raise your kids. It, it virtually covers every single aspect of your life. There is nothing to be separated, nothing to be isolated from what is talked about here. I mean, it has to do with how you study your Bible. It has to do with how you relate to nature, how you relate to animals, how you relate to the, to the stuff you have, how you spend money, how you give. 
Everything. Everything is contained here. It's about eradicating sin in all the life. What Paul does in these verses is he seeks to fan this flame of, of total annihilation of sin. He wants to help us not continue in sin. You remember how the chapter started? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin? By no means. And so all this chapter is about Him now coming alongside us and He says it's a fact. You cannot, if you're in Christ and dead to sin, you cannot continue in it. And now this chapter is laid before us. He comes alongside us and He wants to help us not live in it. He wants to help us conquer sin. He wants to help us rise to newness of life. He wants to help us be a different kind of people. A new kind of people. So, today, I want to move forward quickly to the second part of the series that I started last week called Dead to Sin. I call it this, Dead to Sin, because that's what we are. That's what Paul says. In chapter 6, he plainly says that. Verse 11, you must Consider yourselves dead to sin. Freddie, you weren't here. You must consider yourselves dead to sin. Not consider the fact that you will die to sin. You must consider yourself dead to sin. And why must you consider it? Because it's a reality. In verse 2, he says, we who died to sin. This is foundational. For being a new kind of person. Walking in newness of life. Triumphing over sin. We have died to sin. Past tense already happened. We see that in verse 7. Verse 8. One who has died. If we have died. All past tense. By faith in Jesus Christ, I am so united to Him. And in that union, God mightily puts me to death. It doesn't say sin is dead. It says I'm dead. To it, God mightily, by His power, puts me to death concerning the relationship I once had with sin. That master-slave relationship doesn't exist because the relationship cannot continue where one in the relationship is dead. My uncle just died a week ago. I no longer can carry on a relationship with him. At all. Why? Because he's dead. He's gone. That's the idea, folks. We are dead to this sin. Paul is so confident in this. So certain of the Christian success that he says in verse 14 a statement that needs to ring in your ears, folks. Sin will have no dominion. Over you. This is real. This is true. This is factual. This is a promise of God. And we are commanded to know it, to believe it, to consider it to be so. And this is right where the battle begins. You, Christian, need to know of a certainty that this is a reality. In Christ, you are dead to sin. 
which means you've been set free from sin's power and its ability to dominate your will. But, now hear me on this. I know this is somewhat of some uh, review. Now we begin to launch out into where I want to go today. God says in verse 14, sin will have no dominion over you. And I would ask this question, why will it not have any dominion over you? It won't because God says it won't. And if you guys, you have your Bibles open right there? If you look down to verse 17, thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart. Now, why is Paul thanking God? Do you know why you thank God for something? Because He did it. He caused these people to become obedient from the heart to the truth and removed from the slavery of sin. Why can God so dogmatically say, sin will have no dominion over you? Because God, in His power, is going to see to it that it does not have dominion over you. So, do we say, okay, let's kick out these boy chairs and lawn chairs and all kick back because this thing's all done and it's conquered. Now wait. The very fact that Paul says, let not that sin reign in your mortal bodies is an indication that we don't just sit back. We respond. You know what happens? God is going to show that sin will not have dominion in your life and my life as a true Christian because He is going to exercise His power in such a way that will cause us to fight and to resist. It is true that God means for sin to have no dominion over us. But He means to show that it has no dominion over us by exerting His own power upon us to create and maintain within us this radical, sin-fighting, sin-hating, sin-conquering attitude and life. That's what He does. And so, you know, the very... You might come along and say, well, if it's all done, it's not going to have dominion. I can just sit down. I can relax. I can kick back. No, that's not what God's power does in the life of a Christian. It causes one to fight. It causes one to not let sin reign. And if you're not going to let sin reign, it means you need to resist it. You need to fight it and you need to do battle with it. And that is and when all that's done and there is obedience that flows out, we can turn and thank God. Why? Because He gave you the initiative to fight it, to rise up and resist it, and to let it not reign. And I'll guarantee you folks, if you're not, I'm only speaking to Christians here. If you are not a Christian in this place today, Ephesians chapter 2 says you're dead in trespasses and sins. That's where you are. You have no life. You are not dead to sin. You're not made alive to Christ because you are alive to sin. You are dead in those sins. Alive only to them. You are not alive to righteousness. You are not alive to obedience. So, let me tell you folks, this is war. God means for you to go to war. And it is exterminating warfare. I did not too long ago, I read the book of Joshua. There is so many parallels about Israel going into the land of Canaan and seeking to conquer the Canaanites. And there are so many parallels in that 
to the Christian life. So many. You have been... Remember what Israel was told to do? They were told to go into that land and annihilate everything. Make no covenants. Take none of their women for your wives. Nothing. You go in and God specifically said to them, act against your very human what inclination to show pity. He said, don't show pity. Don't show pity on the young or the old or the women. You go in and slaughter everybody. And that's the way He tells you and commands you when it comes to sin. Pity none of them at all. You do battle and seek to annihilate all of them. All of them. Let not sin reign in your mortal body. None of those sins at all. None. We are to do battle, slaughter them all. Leave none of them alive. And when we get done, and that's a fact and a reality, we can do nothing else. We take credit for it. Just remember what God told those, those Israelites when they went in there under Joshua? He said, lest in the end you think you've done all this by your might. By your... He said, it's not. It's not. It's me. I did this. I gave you the victory. And though you may go in and slaughter all of them, and you may do the combat, in the end, all the more we can do is look to God and say, thanks be to God that all these things are true. So, let's look at the warfare. Christian, you've been involved in this warfare. What I am going to tell you about right now is not something new to you. It's something you already have been experiencing. I just want to try to put it into some kind of systematic way so you can sort it out and say, oh yeah, that's a reality. Because you know, sometimes fighting and winning battle has to do with knowing your enemy. And sometimes we're fighting, but we're not really clear what it is and how we're to fight. We don't really have the battle figured out. I guarantee you, when the United States of America goes to war with somebody, first thing we're going to try to do is figure out our enemy. You know, when we went over there to Germany, we didn't just indiscriminately bomb. You know what we'd blow up? We'd blow up their refineries. We'd blow up their ball-bearing factories. Why? Because we understood the enemy. We specifically targeted those places that we believed would most cripple the enemy. The better you understand your enemy and the whole the whole scope of the battle, the better you will be at preparing yourself, equipping yourself to fight that battle. So, let's look at the warfare. Let me try to lay out this whole thing before you. We have a description of a great conflict or a battleground in the life of the typical believer. This is you, it's me. It's not a believer. This is not a believer we're talking about. A believer does not have the capacity to fight, or an unbeliever does not have the capacity to fight this battle. So, who and what make up the conflict? Let's describe the whole scenario. Look with me at Romans 6.12. Because here we see the battle laid out for us. First, I tried to think of the best words to use, but all I could think of was, there is this dark Lord. He is darker than the devil himself. His name is Sin. And I speak of sin as though it is a person. 
I'm not talking about single acts of sin here. Because the Bible personifies sin. In other words, the Bible speaks about sin not just as an act, but as a power. As something that is almost living and breathing and threatening and aggressive and looming and powerful and dangerous and sinister. Notice in verse 12, let not sin. He doesn't say, don't let your sins as though speaking about them individually. He speaks about don't let sin. It's singular. Therefore reign in your mortal bodies. Sin threatens to reign in your body. I'm not talking about one sin. I'm talking about sin as a power. Almost as a person. As a thing. It comes and it seeks to reign in your body. To dominate. It's not just the acts we do. It's the power that takes us captive. The word reign, you know in Spanish, what's the term for king? What's the term for queen? Reina. It's, folks, the word reign is the verb form of king. Do you know what sin seeks to do? It seeks to so come in and dominate your mortal bodies as to become king. It wants to reign. It wants to set up a throne there. It wants dominion. Sin seeks to be king, to rule, to reign, to have dominion in our lives. And look at how the Bible treats sin. Just think with me. As this living, breathing thing. Remember when Cain fell into sin? God came to him and He said, Cain, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is to have you. Sin is like this sinister, crouching thing that seems to jump and have Him and grab Him, seduce Him and overpower Him and overwhelm Him. The Bible describes sin as that dark thing that overthrows wicked men. It came into the world back in the beginning and men are slaves to it. It is a master. Paul says in Romans 7, listen to this. Listen to how... I mean, oh, if I didn't read this in the Bible, I wouldn't say it because it doesn't even have a ring that even sounds correct to me. But Paul talking about sin in Romans 7 says that sin... Well, he says it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. It's almost as though sin comes to the mortal body and we do mortal battle. And it's in there and we're wrestling with it and we fight with it. And it's there and it seeks to compel me and resist me and cause me to go in directions I don't want. And there's this struggle. I mean, we find in, again in the book of Romans 7 that it says sin. Sin takes advantage. It actually seizes opportunities through the commandments of God to stir up all sorts of wickedness in men. 
So you see, sin is, is personified. This, it's almost as though personality is described to sin. It is this thing that masters. It seizes opportunities. It crouches, ready to launch upon people. It seeks to reign and dominate. Well, now the next thing. That's the first thing. have this dark Lord that seeks to sit on this throne and reign. Where is the throne? That's the next thing. Notice where it is. Look back in verse 12 with me. Let not sin therefore reign where? In your mortal bodies. It's in the mortal body that sin seeks to reign. Brethren, it's right here. It's this. It's... You know, when you read the New Testament, you find out that there is an incredible truth. I, as a Christian, am born again. Regenerated. Old things are passed away. All things become new. I am alive to God. Dead to sin. You know, the Bible says this. It's true. But what is it true of? Folks, that spiritual resurrection that you have had if you are a child of God, it's taken place in the inward man. The outward man, Paul says, is dying. It's decaying. This is called the body of death. This is a body that is deteriorating. It's breaking down. Paul says, we do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. Part of us is dying. You see, the, the resurrection, the redemption that we have experienced is in the inward man. But now, the reason the battle exists, the reason the spirit and the flesh fight is because God never purposed for this redemption to take place in one quick act. We still have this. It's the body. The body of sin. The body of the flesh. The body of corruption. The perishable body. Over and over we have this thing. Folks, you know what Paul says? He says we ourselves groan inwardly. In the battle. Why are we groaning? In Romans 8, he says, we groan because we wait eagerly for the adoptions as sons. What? The redemption of our bodies. You know, when you, when you read about the old man and you read about the flesh, they are connected to this. They're, they're, they're plugged into this mortal body. And sin comes along. It's looking for opportunities. Where is it going to find it? In the mortal body. It seeks to come up and take this body. Take this flesh. Take this old man. This part of us. And He seeks to reign there. In that mortal body. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? So, the dark Lord... Sin seeks to usurp the kingship of God and take the throne. 
And the throne that He wants to sit upon is the throne of your mortal body. That's where it seeks to reign, but there's more. Back to Romans 6.12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Now notice this, folks. How does this dark lord of sin seek to rule and dominate in your mortal bodies. It wants to sit on the throne. But look, it's not by direct obedience to it. It seeks to get dominion over you and it seeks to dominate. It seeks your obedience not by direct obedience to it. It seeks to come into your life and take your desires your natural God-given appetites to capture them, corrupt them, and set them on little thrones around itself and get you to obey them. They are called passions. They are called desires. That term by itself isn't bad. It just, it's an appetite. It's a desire. It can be bad or good. The context relegates that. You know what sin does? Sin comes and it seeks to take your desire for food and corrupt it and set it on a throne and get you to obey it. And by obeying that corrupt passion, obeying sin. He sits master on this great big throne and He sets up these desires on these little thrones and He gets you to submit yourself to them. He takes your desire for drink and He twists it. Now remember, these desires are God-given. God gave you desires for comfort. Desires for food. Desires for sex. Desires for drink. Desires to have friends. Desires... To, to avoid problems. Desires for many things. You have a desire for pleasure. That's God built that into you. You have a desire for joy. God did that. And what happens is sin comes along, captures them, corrupts them, sets them on these thrones. Now, where, where the desire to eat was a good thing, He so corrupted it, that now He wants you to come and bow down to it in a way that's not right, it's not godly, it's not wholesome, it's not righteous. That's what happens. These passions. Now, I'll just tell you this. You guys know this is true. If you had no desire you would have no sin. Isn't that right? If these little passions were not seated on these little thrones, you would never sin would have no domination over you. Because it takes desire to sin. Because I'm not going to sin if I don't desire it. I'm not going to sin if I don't have a passion for it. Now let's see. This moves further. So, the desires of the body can be captured by the power of sin and turned into these little slave masters that demand our obedience our desire shouts commands at us. Fulfill me. Do my bidding. Follow me. Appease me. Gratify me. Obey me. But there's another aspect to this. It goes deeper. 
at verse 13. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Sin doesn't reign in your mortal bodies just because it came into the world. It doesn't reign in your mortal bodies because it wants to. It doesn't reign in your mortal bodies because it's of the devil. It doesn't even reign in your mortal bodies because your passions and desires shout for gratification. It reigns, folks, when you give place to these passions in such a way that you go and you offer up a member of your body to sin. You present it as an offering on the very sacrifice of that altar of sin. Do you see how it happens? God gives the desire, a God-given desire for sexual gratification. Now, He gave that desire. Sin, it's crouching. It's looking for opportunity. It wants to seize an occasion. God said, thou shalt not commit adultery. Sin seizes on that command. It comes to us. It captures that desire for sexual gratification. It corrupts it. Sets it on this throne. This thing shouts to us, obey me. I want satisfaction. I want gratification. And what we do is we take our bodily members and we present them to sin in our obedience to these little passions set up on these little thrones. And that's how sin conquers us and has dominion over these mortal bodies. That's how it reigns. We come, we take our body parts, our members, and we offer them up. We present them to sin as these members of unrighteousness, instruments of unrighteousness. A man's told, thou shalt not commit adultery. Sin crouches, it comes in, corrupts this desire, demands our obedience, and we come and take the sexual organs and offer them and present them to sin as these unrighteous. God gave us our tongues. He gave us our lips. He gave us the ability to enjoy drink. And that that desire for drink comes and says, Obey me! And now it's, it, it leads into drunkenness. It says, Come, we take these body parts. I present my hand as a vessel of righteousness. I go and I procure this stuff and I buy it and I bring it to my lips and I drink it to the place where it brings inebriation. It brings corruption. I am offering it up. That is how sin reigns in the mortal body. It reigns there when you become a slave to it by becoming a slave to those passions on those little thrones and that dark Lord has dominion in your life. It gets you to over and over and over again come and bring and offer up your members of your body to it. That is the battle. And that is what Paul comes around and says, let that not happen. Don't do it. Don't do it. Now, what I would ask you is, how does sin succeed in doing this? How does it... I mean, you've got the whole scope of the battle here. You see what sin is coming in to do. How in the world does it succeed to do this? I'll tell you how it succeeds. It succeeds in making us slaves to it. Just this way. These desires, these passions that are on all these little thrones around us, these passions have been captured and they've been corrupted 
in such a way that sin turns them into liars. Do you know, these passions are called deceitful desires in Ephesians 4.22. Deceitful desires. Well, how is it that they lie to us? You know what they say to us? They make promises. Come! Obey me! And I will make you happy. I will make it pleasurable. You will have fun. You will enjoy this. This will be something that will excite you. It will be, make you feel good. And you know what I can tell you? It's true. Folks, it's true. Parents, don't try to teach your children that sin isn't fun. Because you would be contradicting the Bible. The Bible says that in fact, there is pleasure in sin. It does. I mean, folks, people don't drink because it's not fun. They don't do drugs because it's not fun, at least initially. They don't run around and have all sorts of extramarital sexual affairs because it's not fun and not exciting. It is. It is. Those of us that have tasted and drank this stuff, we know it is. Oh, but in Hebrews where it says that there are pleasures in sin, it says they are fleeting. You see, that's what they don't tell us. They talk to us about the little bit of fun, the little bit of excitement, the little bit of pleasure. But there's nothing in there about the destruction and the sorrow and the ruin and the pain and ultimately the damnation, the separation from God. After the fun and excitement and pleasure and good feeling comes, the pain, the misery, the suffering, the destruction, the death. Yes, it is pleasurable, but it's fleeting. It's fleeting. Moses himself choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Did you hear that word enjoy? Rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. There is enjoyment in sin. There is. There is pleasure there. God says in His Word that there is. But they're deceitful desires. They're deceitful. Sin takes our desires, corrupts them, sets them on these thrones. Little thrones to be obeyed gets us to obey them by having them lie to us. And you know what they promise? They promise satisfaction, true happiness, great fun, extreme pleasure, the richest enjoyments. Literally, they promise us paradise. But what do they deliver? I mean, the thing is, when your passions say... Oh, this is what you need. You want to be happy, you come taste to me. They promise all sorts of great fulfillment and long-lasting enjoyment and riding off into the sunset forever happy. But what do they deliver? What they deliver, there's some pleasure, there's some enjoyment, but it's cheap, it's shallow, it's short-lived. And what does sin do? You know that have tasted it. You know that have drank it. It leaves you the morning after emptier, guiltier, 
more hardened, more disturbed, less peace, needing even more to fulfill yourself the next time. It's shallow stimulation. Leaves us less content, less hopeful, more restless, more discouraged, more enslaved. In the end, we, and after all this, we lose it all and we go to hell. That's basically where these passions lead. That's why 621 here says the outcome of those things is death. Listen to me, folks. Peter says to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. There is a soul war going on. Sin is fighting for the throne of your soul. It is using your desires to get your obedience. It's turning your members into instruments of unrighteousness. It is. That's how this dark Lord operates. God gave sexual desire to be fulfilled and enjoyed in the context of marriage. Sin comes along and takes what was once a good desire, corrupts it, turns it into a liar. This illicit sexual desire says, come on, it will feel good. We bow down to this desire when we offer ourselves, our bodily parts up, present them. And I'll tell you this, we, we have bodily members that sin seeks to take control of by making you obey these passions and offer these fingers, these hands, these feet, these eyes up, present them. But lest we get to the place where we think, Oh, you know, the hands. The hands, that's a member you don't want to offer up to murder. You don't want to punch the numbers on the phone to make the reservation for the abortion. You don't want to rape with them. You know, the sexual organs. You don't want to misuse them in, in, in homosexuality and, and all sorts of promiscuity and sexual aberration. You don't want to do all that. But I'll remind you of this, folks. There is a member of your body that the Bible says is the most wicked and the most corrupt and the most damaging of all of them. You know what it is? It's the tongue. The tongue. Listen to what James says about this. So also the tongue is a small member. Yes, it's small. Yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest it sets ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire. A world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird and reptile and sea creatures can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Oh, how the tongue becomes the instrument that sin seeks to have you set. And you know what passions, what desires? Oh, a little bit of revenge, a little bit of gossip, a little bit of speech here, a little bit of this, a little bit of backstabbing, a little bit of untruth, a little bit of this. You see, and it works the passions. We have these passions for revenge, passions that result in jealousy and envy and lust. And, and, and it comes out through that tongue and sin entices us to take that little member and present it up. Over and over, folks, this is an area 
that I want you guys to be aware of. So, in all of this, what do we do? You know, I was remembering, I think I've remembered this several times since I've been a Christian. There was a bar that my buddies and I used to frequent when I was lost and in college. It's right there by campus. And I can remember going there. There was a certain place in the bathroom, and I won't say exactly where, but it had this little thing that said, just say no. Of course, that was the popular slogan of the day when it came to drug use. Now, think with me, folks. Here we are, a bunch of wild, passionate young men. We are seeking pleasure of every imaginable kind. We are slaves to sin, slaves to our passion, and there's no restraint. We are ready and willing to offer up our members. Present them to We're ready. Just give us any opportunity. We're looking for them. And I go into that bathroom and see, just say no. Now, folks, how much power does that have? Is that how we fight sin? I mean, folks, they spent all that money on that campaign and it was a waste. Every single cent of it. Just say no. I'll tell you this. That is not the way the Christian fights. We must say no. But it's not just say no. There's a lot that goes before you get to verse 12 of chapter 6. In fact, one of the things you have before you get to verse 12 is verse 11, which says that we are to consider certain things to be a reality and to be true. Do we just say no? No! Paul doesn't get to Romans 6.12 until he lays out five and a half chapters of some of the deepest, most solid doctrine of the Gospel and salvation that you can find anywhere. That is what precedes our saying no. There are realities. There are truths. There is that which we have to be convinced of. We need to consider to be a reality. We need to know it. We need to believe it. Before we come to the place where we say no, or where we begin to fight, or where we resist. Well, Look, look at the verse. Look at Romans 6.11. The greatest strategy for resisting, fighting, defeating sin lies in our thinking right. Our believing right. Our considering right. You're there in chapter 6. In verse 6 of chapter 6, right at the beginning, Paul says, we know. About halfway through verse 8, he says, we believe. Then again at the beginning of verse 9, we know. And then in verse 11, so you also must consider. You see what's happening? We know. We believe. We consider. The strategy 
for fighting against sin is a it, it's a battle, folks, that takes place in the mind. And as our brother was talking about in the Sunday school hour today, and dwelling on faith and faith coming from this word, folks, the way you fight sin is based on what you know. I'll tell you this. Any true Christian who is not living right is a true Christian who is not thinking right. Be sure of that. The fight is a battle of the mind. It has to do with what we believe to be a reality. What we bank our faith on. Remember everything that has gone before. I mean, think with me, folks. Think with me. The Gospels laid out. One of the re- I mean, if you guys think back to the point I made all the way back coming out of Romans chapter 1, that the Gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. And I was emphasizing, folks, it's not to everyone who's lost that it's the power of God to the salvation for. It's those who already believe from faith to faith. We go on believing. We keep taking that Gospel as Christians and we keep going back to it again and again. I'll tell you this. I am accepted by God based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And you know something? I need to go back to that reality and that truth over and over and over again. You know why? Because in my battle with sin, I'm not always going to be successful. And if I fall in that Gospel, that imputed righteousness of Christ, I am not accepted by God by my own righteousness. And when I fall, if I don't constantly remember that, I am going to be discouraged. I am going to be cast down. And I will not be able to continue on this fight. I'll get to the place where I throw in the towel and say, what's the use? Defeatist mentality. But I have to constantly come back again and again and again that it's by the obedience of one the many are made righteous. I go back there and I look at it. And when Satan comes in, he's not able to say, look, you've blown it. You're worthless. You're no Christian. Just give up the fight. You might as well just go bury your head in the sand and sin all the more. But I can say, listen, I am not accepted by my failure right now. I am accepted by the perfections of Jesus Christ. But, and I say that in general, because that has gone before. That is where Paul has led us from. And he's bringing us to now this battle with sin. But look at at verse 11. Consider yourselves dead to sin. Consider it to be a fact. And don't let sin reign. Don't walk up to the throne. I mean, he's basically saying this. Christian, sin won't have dominion over you. Don't let it reign. Don't take your bodily members and come up and present them to the throne. Don't do it. Don't take that tongue and present it to gossip. Don't take your sexual organs and present it to some deviant type of sexual desire. Don't do it. Don't do it. You stop doing it. Take those members instead and present them to God as instruments of righteousness. So, that's the first thing. Consider yourselves dead to sin. Think on the fact you're dead to it. Live like you're dead to it. Know you're dead to it. Believe it. We will live according to what we believe. That is what is so essential about the Word of God. We need to be in this because the more we're in it, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. The Spirit of God does not act in this nebulous vacuum. 
The Spirit of God takes the Word of God and empowers it to the children of God. And if you're not in this book, the Spirit of God is not going to somehow magically overstep that book. He's not going to do it. So we've got to be there. We've got to let these truths of the Gospel be something we're constantly looking back to. Consider yourselves dead to sin. 1 Peter 1.14 These passions are called the passions of your former ignorance. You know what? In the past, you were ignorant. In the past, you didn't know that all these things left to death and damnation. You didn't know how displeasing they were to God. You didn't know the realities of Christianity. You didn't know that it was possible to be dead to sin by being in union with Christ. You didn't know these things. You didn't know about Christ being crucified. You didn't know the power He had to subdue these things. You didn't know the glories and the beauty of Christ. You didn't know. They were the passions of your former ignorance. But the thing is now, we need to know. We need to not be ignorant. We do know the realities. And it's not just consider yourselves dead to sin. He goes on to say, consider yourselves alive to God. You know what that is, folks? I'm now alive to the beauty of God. I'm alive to the glory of God. I'm alive to the will of God. To the Word of God. I am alive to the eternal enjoyments of God. I am alive to the realities of heaven. I am alive to a hope that goes beyond anything the world can offer me. I am alive to Him. I now have, I have spiritual abilities to sense Him, perceive Him, love Him, admire Him, have Him, touch Him, hold Him. And I find Him to be the treasure of exceeding great value. I was dead to that before. I need to count the realities. Because I'll tell you this, the only way you will overcome the desires of the flesh is by being alive to God and having passions and desires for Him that are greater than those old ones. That's it. When it comes down to saying, let not sin reign, I'm making a choice. The way you make choices is you have to decide. You have to pick one thing over and above another. And so I'm picking God's will, God's pleasure in me, God's smile upon my life, God's eternal and everlasting paradise over those fleeting, temporal, shallow gratifications of the passions that have been twisted and corrupted by... Hey, it's still there. Christian, that old passion is still seeking to sit on that throne and say, come and gratify your sexual desire in a way that's not right. Come and desire your desires for food in ways that are not wholesome and right. Come and desire your... Come and, and fulfill that desire you have for friendship or for pleasure in these ways. It still offers them. And you know what? The only way a person will live a life and defeat sin is a life of faith. It has to come down to what I believe. It has to come down to the fact that when I'm being allured by one of these passions, deceitful passions of this body of sin, that I'm able to say from faith, 
I believe that if I run off after another woman, it won't go well with me. It won't be good. It won't be healthy for my family. It won't get the smile of God. It won't be good for my ministry. It won't be good for my life. It won't be good for my eternity. It will not be good. I want to please God. I love my wife. I want to keep my family together. I want to do what God has me doing and has called me to do. I am not willing to throw away all these things I have in Jesus Christ for the sake of some fleeting sin. And so, even though there may be some pleasure in that, I'm not going to pick it. Because I desire other things more than I desire that. But it has to come from faith. It has to come from the fact, I believe these things are so. You know why the guy who professes to be a Christian and comes in and can never kick the habit of, of his heroin use, or never can kick the habit of his crack use, I'll tell you why. Because he's never come to the place where he's alive in God and sees what he has to offer as more valuable than what crack offers or heroin offers or sex offers or alcohol offers or any of these things. Ultimately, that is where the battle is. And if you have not faith, you cannot fight this battle. Because of all things, Paul says, this is the strategy. This is the preparation. Consider. <laughs> Consider. I mean, isn't there something more to that? You see, folks, Charles came to me last week after everything's over and he said, well, brother, I'm hearing what you're saying, but what's the difference between this contemplation and this consideration and this philosophy the world has of just thinking positively? I said, brother, it's because what we have is based on the Word of God and all the truths of the Word. What they have, this just say no thing, that's, that's where all man-made religions and all man-made self-help programs start. They start with saying, don't do this. They set up a list. The Bible, it starts at Romans 1.1. And it builds the gospel and justification and righteousness that's imputed to me in Christ. And it builds up this whole thing. Dead to sin, alive to God, radical transformation. Faith of Abraham, Romans chapter 4. All this is given and God justifies the ungodly and He pours forth His love and shows it. In a time when we were weak, He, he pours that upon us. We're taken out of Adam where we were dead in sin. We're joined with Christ. We have union with Him. There is a power of godliness. It's unleashed. Sin will not have dominion. I take all these promises. I take all these truths. I take all these beliefs. There is a land. There is a place. There is a country that I'm striving for, reaching for. It is paradise. That man hung on that cross. Christ said, this day you'll be with me. I believe it. And I am going that place. I can leave these trivial, shallow gratifications behind. But nobody can unless they believe these things. And if you have true faith, you will leave them. Because God will so open your eyes. That God who said, let that light shine out of darkness, He will show His glory in the face of Jesus Christ. It becomes so precious, so glorious, so amazing. Come let us adore Him. You know, when you have that springing from your heart, you don't have to sit there and bow down to the shrine of some deviant sex out there. You don't have to bow down to this crack idol out there. Not once you've seen the glories of the face of Jesus Christ. That's how the battle is won. You see, people trying to fight this battle without that, they end up with what? Legalism. 
some dry, formal, hard, all the time their heart really wants the sin, but they know if they don't work out this code of ethics, they're not going to make it in the end. But that's not true Christianity. The power of true Christianity is to free us from sin by giving us a delight and a desire for something much greater. And that is the battle. And you know what? You know what this desire comes from? And where this faith comes from? And this contemplation comes from? This knowing and this believing? Folks, it's, it's by spending time walking with this Christ. Getting to know Him. That's what eternal life is all about. Knowing Him. Knowing the Father. Immersing yourself in this Word. Long periods in prayer. You cannot foster this battle with sin in some easy little ten minute a day deal. You have to immerse yourself into godliness. Immerse yourself into the Word of God. Immerse yourself into the life of God. A relationship with God. Walk with Christ. Commune with Christ. Know His Word. Consider your deadness to sin. Consider your life in Christ. And then it says, consider that all that is in Jesus Christ. Consider your union with Him. Cherish it. Love it. Savor it. Think upon it. Meditate on it. I am joined to Christ. And let your assurance flow. I mean, this... This chapter is about that too. I mean, assurance just flows from this. You have this idea, this contemplation. I am joined with Jesus Christ. I am actually already seated in heavenly places in Him. I mean, I'm there. I'm locked in. I can win this thing. I'm going to win this thing. This thing is so certain that in Romans chapter 8, it doesn't say you will be glorified. It says you're already glorified. It's nailed down. It says you already sit in those heavenly places. It is a nailed deal, folks. You can fight and win this thing and must win this thing because God's power is going to bring it to pass. He is not going to fail in that work which He has started. He will complete it until that day of Jesus Christ. Sin will not have dominion over you because you are dead to it. You are alive to God in Him. And if you're not in Him, you can't fight this battle. It won't happen. You say, how do I get in Him? You repent and you believe. And remember, faith comes by hearing just as much as our faith comes by hearing as Christians. If you're an unbeliever, your faith will come from the same place. If you don't have the ability to conquer sin in your life, Go to the Word of God and go to the cross and call upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And He says, He will save those who come to Him. If you're thirsty, go to Him and drink. And He will give you this victory. Because He has promised to make you a new creature. He has promised to put His Spirit within you. He's promised to give you a new heart, make you a new creation. You are His craftsmanship in Him. He will do this. He is mighty to save. Be certain of that. Father, I pray that You would make us certain of this. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. You're dismissed.